Hello, and, and welcome, welcome to, to Podcastle. Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson. And I'm Anna Schwent. And we are here today to talk to you about Greg Van Eekhout's new novel, the first in a trilogy, California Bones. This is a book, um, for some of you who've been listening to Podcastle for a very long time, you might remember Greg's story, The Osteomancer Son. I think it was one of the first 10 episodes that ran at Podcastle. It actually ran before Anna and I started editing Podcastle. I remember um, Anna and I being on the forums just as, you know, listeners and being like, oh, cool, that story was cool. And, um, yeah, and now that story has morphed into a full-on novel, and it's freaking awesome. It is. It's a very enjoyable read. We will recommend it very highly as a summer read because it's a lot of fun, as a good summer read should be. It's, yeah, it's a ton of fun. Um, Greg Van Eekhout. Greg Van Eekhout's an author that we've known for a long time. He was actually running stuff or had stuff published at Escape Pod. Uh, and I think he was one of the first authors you heard at Escape Pod. Is that right? Yes. He essentially is responsible for hooking me on Escape Pod way back with, and I'm not going to know what number, but like episode five or six or seven was one of his, as he used to call them back then, story grenades, a sort of short but intense story, flash fiction. And uh, I heard... Uh, Airedale, I think, is the one that it was. And I was like, oh, yes, sign me up. And I was from then on hooked. Awesome. Yeah, I, I trying to remember what the first story of his that I heard was. I think it was the story at Escape Pod that had, like, Philip K. Dick in it, author works. Oh, um, yeah. And, and that was a great that, one. Yeah, it was really <laughs> I'd forgotten about and that one. It's great. He ran a bunch of stories there at Escape Pod, and then Rachel ran the Osteomancer's son. And when we came on board, we bought a bunch of stories for him, um, and a bunch of stories which I've read, too, uh, which, is, which I love doing. I love reading Greg's stuff, so... We're really, really stoked to be able to talk to you about the Osteomancer Sun. And let's go ahead and get things kicked off with Greg Van Eekhout. Thanks, Dave and Anna. Uh, you know, my involvement with the Escape Artists family of podcasts goes back actually before Podcastle, back to 2005, when Steve Ely bought a bunch of my flash fiction. And I've been on all three of the pods, but none more than Podcastle, I think. I'd have to go back and count. But anyway, it's very nice of you to let me talk about my new novel here. And actually, before there was the novel California Bones, there was a short story that started my exploration of the world and the characters and the ideas for this book. That was The Osteomancer's Son, which appeared in Asimov's in 2006 and then later in Podcastle. I kind of tend to do that, writing a short story that later grows into a novel. It usually goes in that direction because something about a particular short story keeps scratching at me. There's this thing you do in short stories when you invent a world. You don't really invent the whole world or not even as much of the world as you would invent in a novel. But you try to convince the reader that there really is a fully realized and complicated world sitting just off the margin of the page. It's like how Hollywood sets 
don't have a backside or sometimes anything other than what you see on the movie screen. But if they do it well, you will believe that it's an entire universe. Uh, sometimes you build enough of the set, though, that you actually want to build the rest of it. And that's kind of what happened with Ospiemancer's son. Also, sometimes people will just write out, tell you that they want more. They want a novel or maybe even a few novels. And I had a few people tell me that. And uh, again, one of them was Dave Thompson. Okay, so what's the book about? Uh, California Bones is the first volume in a trilogy from Tor Books. It's a contemporary fantasy, what people tend to call urban fantasy. And the basic premise is that people can get magical abilities by consuming the remains of magical creatures. So eat dragon bones and you get the imperviousness of dragon scales, or maybe the ability to breathe fire. Or maybe if you're a really clever wizard, you could even get the power of flight. The magic is called osteomancy, and the wizards who practice it are called osteomancers. So Los Angeles is a particularly rich source of osteomancy because of the La Brea Tar Pits. They once contained a lot of bones from dragons and griffins and sphinxes and all sorts of things like that. But the bones are a finite resource, and osteomancers are motivated to get as much of the bone as they can to hoard as much as they can, and to use as much as they can. And the more access you have to bones, the more powerful you are. In the Southern Californian Kingdom, the most powerful osteomancer of all is a guy called the Hierarch. He's a century-old wizard king of the realm. He eats bones, but he also eats people who have eaten bones, because that's another way to get magical power, and also political power. One of the Hierarch's top Lieutenants is a brilliant osteomancer named Sebastian Blackland. So one day the hierarch bursts into Sebastian's house and he eats him right in front of his 12-year-old son, Daniel. Daniel Blackland is the main character of California Bones. Uh, he gets away from the hierarch and to stay away, he lives under assumed identities, living a kind of underground existence as a thief. He does work for his uh, uncle and protector, who's a crime boss. And Daniel's actually a quite good thief, and he's helped out by his own wizard skills. And when his crime boss uncle draws him into a heist to steal an important object from the hierarch himself, Daniel, along with a band of his loyal criminal friends, comes face to face with his past. I guess I should tell you something about the characters who make up my crew of thieves. I've already talked about Daniel. Uh, Daniel is in his early 20s at the time of the book, and he's the leader of the gang and he's a powerful osteomancer in his own right. He would sacrifice his life for his friends, but he really is a thief, so he's also willing to take what he needs from them. Moth is Daniel's best friend, and when we first encounter him, he's trying to sell one of his own kidneys for cash. He can do this because he's eaten a lot of hydra bone. Uh, hydra is the creature whose head grows back when you cut it off, so Moth can bounce back from a ridiculous amount of punishment, including growing a kidney back. And I, I got to tell you, um, writing Moth and Daniel was just one of those things that you don't plan for. You just discover that uh, it was really fun. Their banter really kind of took off for me. So anytime I had uh, a day of writing that had been tough, I really looked forward to a good uh, Daniel and Moth scene. Cassandra Morales is the best pure thief on Daniel's crew. She can break mechanical locks and electronic locks and also get around Sphinx riddles. Josephine Alvarado is the shapeshifter. She wanted to be an actress, so her parents got her acting classes and dance lessons and a voice coach, and they also fed her various kinds of shapeshifting magic so that she could change her form to play any role. 
And finally, there's the mysterious Emma Walker. She's the inside man who works in the Hierarch's ossuary, and Daniel needs her, but he doesn't trust her. And uh, she definitely has her own hidden agenda. So California Bones, it's a heist novel with magical conflicts against the background of a world that's very different than our own in a lot of ways because of the presence of magic. There's family legacy and there's oppression, both from government and from masters of commerce. There's jokes, there's darkness and grim stuff, uh, there's action and adventure. And there's the idea that in a world where it's literally eat or be eaten, it's almost an act of resistance to form a created family of friends who love and trust each other. The, uh, the book came out on June 10th, 2014, which is just a couple of weeks ago from when I'm recording this. Book two is called Pacific Fire, and it's going to be out January 27th, 2015. And book three will be out late summer or early fall 2015. So I guess I'll uh, turn it back to Dave and Anna. Thanks for letting me blather about the book, and thanks very much for listening. And welcome back. So there you have it, Greg Van Eka, California Bones, <laughs> this book. Man, this book is, it, you called it a summer read, and I totally agree. It's got this super breezy feel to the prose. I mean, the prose are just a lot of fun. Um, and it's fast-paced, very exciting, lots of action. Um, the, the weird thing is, it starts off at the beginning of the book, very much like that short story does. Maybe even a touch darker. Like, at the end of the first chapter, I was like, holy crap, this is, uh, this, this is kind of disturbing. Yes, it's... And I it's, oh, go ahead. It's hard to start with cannibalism. Sorry, spoilers, yeah. but it's the first chapter. And then it's be like, woohoo, fun summer read. But yeah. he totally does it. It gets better. It works. Um, not not that it was a bad part, but it gets more. I mean, the, the one of the things that Greg's super talented at is the way that he can balance all that dark and gruesome stuff with his very snarky sense of humor. And um, the whole thing has that sense of humor just running right through it. Yeah, he does an excellent job at highlighting the dark and laying it on alongside sort of the absur absurdities of life um, and making it funny and dark all at the same time. So it's basically a, a type of urban fantasy mashed up with a heist. It's a heist novel. Yeah. Yeah, it's urban fantasy. It's set relatively in contemporary times. There, um, because because magic is such an open part of this world, some of the technology hasn't quite caught up to where we are now. There's no cell phones. There's not a lot of uh, super super high tech stuff like that, but. It's it's got a very urban feel to it. It and it's a heist book, which is so much fun. I mean, like the whole time I was reading it, I had uh, like the Kill Bill soundtrack running in the background of my head because you know stuff was about to get real, and 
Yeah, there's there's those elements like there's the crew and everybody has their part to play. There's the um, the odds, which are incredibly stacked against them. And then there's the whole thing where they do the planning. I thought he did a really good job of balancing showing the planning, but not to tedious detail and levering, leveraging the tension there, because that's a hard thing to do. I, I was kind of surprised in a really good way how fast they went through the planning and got to the actual heist itself because I, I, I think I would have been bored if he, <laughs> he just kept on going with the planning and the casing, but the way Greg writes, it's just bam, 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 you know, yeah. There was enough. There was enough for it to seem like, yes, they really did the planning, but not so much that, were, that you were bored. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I don't... I'm. There are probably other heist fantasy books out there, but I haven't read one quite like this before, and that was really cool. And maybe when the listeners uh, respond on the thread, they can tell us, you know, oh, this is a lot like this other book, because I would be interested in reading more books like this one. This was yeah, a great... It's not an area that I've delved deeply in, but I would be interested because this was a great time. Um, so one of the things, one of the other things that I thought that he did a really fantastic job with that is hard to do well is the main character and the foil for the main character, um, who's a character named Gabriel. It was interesting to me how different he made Gabriel and Daniel, but of course they have some things that tie them together. They have a very similar past. Um, and it took me a few minutes to realize that Gabriel was the foil and I started to really like him. And then I realized he'd set him up to be opposed. And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> what am I going to do now? Who am I going to sympathize with and like, but he worked it out all to my satisfaction. So it's not too much of a deal. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you know, the, the whole time that Daniel is the one who's gonna, you know, try to pull this heist off. And so when it switches over to Gabriel, you're kind of skeptical. Like, who is this guy? But I liked him so much. Um, he's very, very likable and, and very reasonable. Yeah. And he's like, for him, magic is bureaucracy. You know, administrative bureaucracy. You have forms and you have stuff and the way it works and the order. And if you just know who to talk to, you can get things done and be orderly. And he's a big believer in order for the sake of order. You know, order makes everyone's life better. And it was, it was very well played. He was very sympathetic. One of the things I like so much about this book was the world building uh, and where the story set. The story set in California but Greg wanted to do something really interesting. He wanted to write a Southern California book that felt like California, but also felt like a totally different and unique version of, of Los Angeles. So what did he do? He went in there and um, he took out all the cars and replaced the freeways with water canals. And, it's um, like the Venice of it, California or yeah, something. It, well, was pretty kinda, like, it was pretty cool. It was super cool. And um, he also has, through, through the magic, he's got these people who should be dead or should have died a long time ago, like William Mulholland, 
uh, Walt Disney. <laughs> I love that Walt Disney in this book is kind of like the shady um, corporate sorcerer who uses his dark magic to, uh, you know, get the people of Los Angeles and probably all over the United States of America um, into his movies and into Disneyland and stuff like that. It was, so, it was totally opiate of the masses yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. And then um, there was also a, a Brian Wilson-esque uh, from the Beach Boys character. Right, and right. When I realized that's who that was, I was like, oh, <laughs> It was just really cool. So I, I love the, the world that he created. I thought it was pretty clever. And like I said, uh, totally breezy and a lot of fun. So I will tell you, I will add to that, that I think this is a Sidious character book. And I think, among other things, and I think that Los Angeles is its own character. And I will confess, I have never been to Los Angeles, um, and I'm not actually that interested in going to Los Angeles, but I Ouch. was totally, I know, <laughs> California, not that interesting to me, but I was totally sucked in and captivated by Los Angeles as he depicted it. And I could tell that he was taking real stuff. Of course, some of them I've heard of, you know, the, the, um, the La Brea Tar Pits, the museums, the monuments. I, I, I know those are there. And so it was a nice, and I think for people who actually know Los Angeles, they, they will get an excellent, even better thrill out of reading about these familiar places, but kind of canted, kind of twisted and turned a little yeah, differently. I mean, I, I know that whatever that taco stand is, is really there uh, that he talks about. Um, and so I thought he did a really lovely job with um, Sidious character. Yeah. Um, and then the only other thing that I thought was interested was interesting, and I hope will be developed in the second book because it is a trilogy. There will be more books for those of us who enjoyed this one. Is the idea of other magics and the idea that people did not in other places in other countries because this is a separatist California. Um, it's separated away from the United States and you don't get a lot of the rest of the United States, but you get the impression that they are not as magically oriented. And then also in the book through some twists, which I do not wish to reveal, you get the idea that um, magic has other venues besides this osteomancy, that there are other ways to do magic that maybe aren't as popular and definitely aren't as well known in this particular environment. Um, so I'm eager to see how both of those play out in future books. Yeah. And one of the things that's, that's cool about this book is that, or about this trilogy is that it's all done. Um, the first book is out now. You can go grab it. The second book, I believe it's called Pacific fire is coming out in January. And the third book, the final book in the trilogy, is coming out about a year from now. Um, so Greg's written them all, he's turned them all in, and they're just waiting to get published. So I'm, I'm excited about that accelerated publishing schedule. Yeah, me too. Well, uh, I guess that about wraps it up. Do you have anything else that you want to add, Anna? Not a thing. Okay. So uh, we have a little treat for you guys before we go. We've never done this quite like we're going to do it now, but uh, we have an excerpt from California Bones that will hopefully give you a little taste and flavor of what the rest of the book is. 
unfortunately, there's no audiobook yet of California Bones. So we couldn't get in touch with the narrator to use some of his narration. So guess what? <laughs> I'm going to read you get it. Dave. <laughs> Dave's <laughs> reading it. Surprise, Yay! I'm reading a Greg Van Eekout story. <laughs> right. We've never had that happen before. Uh, first time for everything. So, look, thanks, guys, very much for listening. Seriously, we, we really enjoyed this book, and we hope you do, too. Drop in on our forum and let us know what you think, and we look forward to seeing you there. Thank you, guys. Take care. Bye. Tommy's, Big Tommy's, Original Tommy's, Tom's number five, Tommy's with one M, Big Tommy's with one M. And there were more, spread all over Los Angeles and beyond, from Simi Valley to the San Gabriel Valley, all the way down to San Diego. The burger joints shared two things in common, the oddly compelling generic meat flavor of the chili and the ubiquitous presence of his friend Moth whose lifelong meal plan consisted of a circuitous pilgrimage to every one of the Tommy's variants. Daniel caught up to him near closing time at Big Tommy's in West L.A. at Pico and Sawtell. Moth was just about to tuck in to what was probably his third or fourth or seventh chili burger of the day when he saw Daniel approach and rose to engulf him. Man, I've missed you, Moth purred like the lowest note on a cello but you gotta fuck off. Well, aren't you Mr. Hot and Cold? What's up? I'm meeting people in ten minutes. Working a deal. Here? What happened to not shitting where you eat? Not here, here, Moth said, but close enough I don't want you around. It was then that Daniel noticed the plastic lunch cooler on the cracked tile floor. What's in the box? Uh, you don't want to know. Moth wouldn't meet his eyes. Moth, what's in the box? Moth blew out a puff of air. He looked around to make sure nobody was eavesdropping. Okay, fine. It's a kidney. I'm selling a kidney. Are you happy? Please tell me it's not your kidney. Well, fuck, who else's kidney would I be selling? Daniel buried his face in his hands. He'd first met Moth on an asphalt basketball court at Venice High, a school neither of them attended. They'd been on opposite teams for a pickup game, and Moth had used his superior size to foul Daniel on every possession, whether or not Daniel was driving with the ball or stopping to tie his shoe. When Daniel finally had enough, he charged Moth with fists windmilling in a suicide bid for vengeance. Moth easily absorbed Daniel's blows, and sent him sprawling on his ass. But he was impressed by Daniel's recklessness, and declared that he was switching teams to Daniel's side. He'd been on Daniel's side ever since. They'd had a lot of good times. Daniel and Cassandra and Moth and Joe and Punch. Graduating from junior varsity store break-ins and home burglaries to warehouses, and secure storage facilities and jobs that could properly be called heists. But at the end of those years, things were different. Daniel and Cassandra were no longer a couple. Joe was out of the business. 
Moth was changed on a cellular level, and Punch was dead. Moth, I shouldn't have to keep saying this. It's just not healthy to be selling your own kidneys. Moth sat back down and took a massive bite out of his chili burger. I know, but my, hey, there's a finger in my soup scam is played out, and a man's got to earn a living. Not this way. I have a job for us. Moth chewed. What is it? Let's get out of here and we can talk about it. Moth made a paper napkin translucent by wiping orange grease off his lips. First, I finished my deal, and then we can talk about it. Who are you selling to, anyway? He hunkered down, as if by doing so he could make his broad six-foot-six frame less noticeable. Sawtell boys. Are you fucking crazy? Daniel whispered. Because the Sawtell boys are. Oh, they're not so bad, once you get to know them. I am never going to get to know them. The Saltels were leeches. They acquired bones and organs and corpses of magic users and leached whatever osteomantic residues they could recover from resale. Daniel really, really didn't like these guys. Moth, listen, the job. It's the ossuary. It'll pay way better than whatever the Saltels are paying you for a kidney. Let's just go. I'll take you to Original Tommy's. I'll lay out the details, Will. Moth jiggled the ice in his soft drink cup and slurped on his straw. I'm receptive, but I have to finish this little deal first, because I said I would. So, how about I meet you at Original Tommy's in an hour, and you can give me the whole pitch. I gotta go now. Daniel wanted to scream. Fine, he spat. Fine, sell your stupid kidney if you have to. But I'm coming with you. They had a good, long stare down. Moth's stare was definitely more frightening than Daniel's, but Daniel wasn't going to let Moth deal with the Sawtell boys without backup. In the end, Moth said nothing. He picked up his cooler and headed out the door, and Daniel followed. They walked several blocks beneath the 405 flumeway without talking, the sounds of rushing water and both engines mixing into a white noise roar over their heads. The Sawtells had sent five guys. They slouched around a support column in their red bandanas and voluminous khakis. Dirt crunched beneath Moth and Daniel's shoes as they approached. Who's the gristle? one of them said, tilting his chin at Daniel. He was short and pudgy, and his sleeveless t-shirt revealed little muscle. Nothing about him suggested leadership qualities, but since he'd spoken first, Daniel decided to watch him closest. Just a friend, Moth said, clearly annoyed at Daniel. Is it a problem? Because you got four other guys with you, so... Short Pudgy grinned jade teeth and laughed as if something funny had just occurred. I don't care. Everyone needs backup, and we're all caring. There were a lot of hands in pockets. You got the meat? Moth set his cooler on the ground and popped it open. Short Pudgy took a couple of steps forward and leaned over. Sealed in a plastic sandwich bag and packed in ice was a bloody purplish shiny thing shaped like a flattened potato. Okay, Short Pudgy said. Moth shut the cooler and began a sentence that was probably about the money when the guns came out and the shooting started. The Sawtells were such fuckers. Daniel didn't see much because Moth had thrown him to the dirt. 
He landed face down, and when he rolled over onto his side, it was a storm of muzzle flash and gunshots. Daniel screamed as a spray of something struck his cheek, but it was only gravel from bullets striking the ground. Moth wasn't so lucky. Blooms of red appeared in his side and back as bullets tore through him, but the gunfire tapered off as he reached the shooters, and then the sounds became high-pitched screams and snapping bones. Moth laughed hideously, which meant he was hurt and in pain and also really angry. And by the time Daniel managed to reach for the small memories and bring a fuzz of cracking electricity to his fingers, the five Sawtell boys were sprawled on the ground, cradling broken limbs. Short Pudgy shrieked like a tropical bird and stared at the white splintered bone emerging from his calf. The shrieking died in a gurgle of pain as Moth jostled him, searching his pockets for money. I don't think they have any. Daniel got back to his feet. I know, but I at least need to check, Moth said, somber. I could have told you it would play out like this. D, I'm shot. Like, a whole bunch of times. So, let's not do I told you so. Okay, I'm sorry, but can we go in case of cops? The Sawtell boys, those who could still move, rolled in the dirt, groaning or weeping. Moth gave up on his cash and picked up his cooler with a bleeding hand. Total waste of a kidney, he said. You'll grow an even better one, Daniel soothed. They turned and walked away and left the leeches behind. How are you feeling? Uh, Moth said. Hurts like a meanie, but I'm healing pretty good. New one should be ripe in a few hours. I'm at the bullets. Moth grinned like a maniac. Little bullets, he said. When they reached Daniel's boat, Daniel tossed Moth a towel from the trunk. Still up for original Tommy's? Let's make it Tom's number five and I'll hear you out about this job. Daniel opened the passenger door and let Moth squeeze gingerly onto the seat. I've missed you, buddy, Daniel said. You too, Moth said. He set the cooler containing his kidney on his lap and buckled in.